This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan, and I'm excited to once again welcome Sarah Welch Larson back to the co-hosting chair. Sarah, welcome back. Thank you. I'm delighted to be back here. I don't know if uh, any of anybody on the other side of the headphones will be able to fully appreciate it. But I'll just have you know, I am dancing all out in the middle of my recording booth. Um, and uh, I'll treat you to a little bit of snapping <laughs> just to give you a little bit of that uh, visual. But um, I'm dancing my heart out over here. I, I, I like it. I think that the audio format for podcast is actually the ideal way to experience my dancing. So I'm really happy with the way this <laughs> has worked out. Listeners, we are going to be ending 2021 with a bang with our review of Steven Spielberg's version of West Side Story. This is, of course, his remake of the 1961 classic, and Sarah and I are going to be digging into it in all of its musical glory. All that's coming up on episode 315 of Seeing and Believing. What's forever? Like... I want to be with you forever. You don't want to start maybe with, I'd like to take you out to coffee? No. Come on. I want to take you to a shop full of nuts for a cream cheese sandwich on a raisin bread. This ain't casual like that. Oh. I want to be with you forever. Quiero estar contigo para siempre. Quiero estar... Con, 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 contigo, with you, contigo. para siempre. 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 Yes, we're here on episode 315 of Seeing and Believing. And Sarah, I think we are going to use the fact that it's almost Christmas and it's the end of the year and we're all just kind of dragging ourselves over the finish line here. But uh, it took us a while to get that that cold open nailed. So I'm happy that, that we finally did it. Hopefully it'll be smooth sailing from here on out. I don't know what you're talking about. I was nimbly dancing the entire time. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> That that's that's true, uh, listeners. Uh, I I know you couldn't see her, but you know Sarah is of course fleet of foot, and it was a shame that that was not captured for posterity. Uh, but we do have a really good episode coming up for you here. We wanted to make sure that a big film finished out our 2021, and man, Sarah, like the uh, a musical by Steven Spielberg uh, working in a genre that he has been wanting to work in pretty much for his entire career. That seems like an appropriately big way to to go to send out the year on. Oh, yeah, absolutely. A musical by Steven Spielberg is like five words I think every girl wants to hear. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this definitely feels like a good way to end with a bang <laughs> instead of a whimper. A new film from Steven Spielberg is an event in itself. A new musical from Steven Spielberg is an even bigger event. 
a remake of one of the biggest American movie musicals of all time. Mm-hmm. That's you know that's the the triple threat right there, and it is. Uh, quite a doozy that we're going to be talking about on the episode today. Uh, Listeners, uh, of course, if you listened to last week's episode, you are familiar with Sarah. She is returning for uh, her second week in a row in the co-host chair. She is a writer all across the internet, mainly for Brightwall Dark Room and for Think Christian. She's also the author of Becoming Alien, The Beginning and End of Evil and Science Fiction's Most Idiosyncratic Film Franchise. And she is here to talk about Steven Spielberg's West Side Story. I have so much to say about this movie, too, so I'm delighted we're talking about it. I'm looking forward to it, for sure. This is, like we said before, Spielberg's long-awaited attempt to make a musical. He definitely set himself a challenge by remaking one of the most well-known movie musicals ever, Jerome Roberts and Robert Wise's 1961 adaptation of a stage play created by luminaries like Stephen Sondheim, Rest in Peace, Leonard Bernstein, and Arthur Lawrence. A lot hasn't changed, of course. The story is still about the Romeo and Juliet-style romance between two young people who are each involved with feuding street gangs in 1950s New York City. But working from a screenplay by Tony Kushner, another luminary, Spielberg makes some choices that will be new to fans of the 1961 film. I guess to get us started, Sarah, the big question in my mind is uh, what sort of... uh, previous connection do you have to that earlier film and as you were watching this new uh remake by spielberg how did you feel about how well the changes and fresh visuals that he brings to it works oh man so true confession time i think um i've only seen the original west side story movie once Um, So I don't have a massive uh, background on it. I'm familiar with some of the more famous songs like I Feel Pretty. I'm very familiar with that one. Um, But I saw this movie or I saw the original version of this movie for the first time just a few years ago um, at Chicago's own Music Box Theater in 70 millimeter, which is probably Mm. the best way to see it just because it's so big and it's so bright. Um, And that was one of the big things that I was kind of comparing and contrasting this new version of the movie with um, while I was watching Spielberg's version in the theater last night, um, is that it's not quite as colorful as the original. Um, I think they kind of like washed out some of the colors a little bit to give it more of a nostalgic feel of everything looks a little bit softer. Everything looks a little bit faded with a few very strategic color splashes. Um, And that just kind of astounded me because like... I get the instinct, I think, to make something appear a little bit older than it is by washing out the colors a little bit. But so many movies these days are washed out already that it didn't quite make sense to me to take one of the most colorful movies of all time and remake it in a way that just it it didn't quite translate the color over for me. So that was that was my first impression. And then the more I think about it, the the more I like the movie overall. But that was the first thing that I was thinking of while I was watching it. Yeah, it's there. There's a trade off here in the approach that Spielberg takes. He he does kind of. It seems like he kind of goes for more of a of a. Um, not, not realistic isn't the right word, but it's definitely mm-hmm. with the desaturated visuals and maybe more of an emphasis on the social realism, I guess. There's a lot more emphasis on class in this version mm. of West Side Story than I remember in the original. Uh, you know, I, I don't have a huge, um, you know, spot in my 
uh, cinematic pantheon for West Side Story. I've seen it, of course, um, but the the original I I, I mostly remember uh, for it um, feeling very much uh, like a like like a stage musical. There there's there's mm-hmm. a, a a showiness to it. Um, t- the the colors, like you mentioned, the the performances, um, all kind of combined to create almost a. a fairy tale quality to it that is all its own and spielberg basically diverges from that right from the get-go and wants to be doing using the same exact material to tell a story that is much more rude in the grime of the setting and you know i i like this version quite a bit i would have to go back and now that i've seen this version rewatch the original and see if I have a preference. I think it's a very strong version, but it comes with trade-offs because on the one hand, it is kind of nice to see the film really, I don't know, take take some of its uh, commentary on race and class um, in, in a much more uh, grounded direction. That's really nice mm-hmm. to see. But the trade-off is when you're telling a story that's essentially Romeo and Juliet, love at first sight, um, two young people essentially agree to run away with each other despite only knowing each other for basically a day. That maybe lends itself a little bit more readily to the the much more the the artifice and the showiness of the 1961 original. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that this one feels more grounded because I still felt like it had a little bit of that stage equality to it. Like there were a few a few moments where. It really felt like the action was happening on a soundstage. Um, I'm thinking of um, the balcony scene, the the famous uh, fire escape scene duet between Tony and Maria. Um, I'm also thinking about some of the street scenes at the end. And maybe it was the quality of the lighting or maybe it was um, the fact that this space felt very small, even though it was supposedly happening outside. I I still kind of got that um, artificiality to it. Um, I feel like, I don't know, it, it does feel like the camera is a little bit more free in this version. And that's probably a technology thing because they didn't really necessarily have drones or anything that could go swooping in and out of all of these old buildings like Spielberg does. Um, so this version, I think, gets a little bit, um, it, it feels a little bit less bounded by like staging in a, in a way, because mm-hmm. you're not necessarily limited by like a locked off camera or a camera that's on rails. You can do a lot more with it. Um, and at the same time, one of the things that really worked for me about this movie was the way that the camera moves and the way that all of the actors move around in the frame. Like this movie is a masterclass in blocking and in staging and in seeing like what people are thinking, depending on where they are at any given point on the screen. Um, I don't know if, if if that detail necessarily worked for you, but it definitely worked for me. I thought the the filmmaking in this movie was exhilarating. I thought mm-hmm. I, I I you know after after movies like The Greatest Showman, which is all you know pop flash, and it just the comparing that film to this, just in terms of the the I mean obviously the the music is a big point of divergence but also just the the way the camera the way Spielberg moves his camera the way that he 
uh, and and his editor uh, cut on on mm-hmm. certain actions to and, and let the camera breathe to let us actually see the wonderful choreography is just just wonderful. And he, like you said, is just excelling in terms of the way he places actors within the frame, the way that he um, has very well chosen insert shots. There's of course this one really standout sequence. It's the, um, it's the song cool, which Mm -hmm. is uh, in this version. uh, Tony is singing it to riff and the rest of the jets trying to, you know, cool them down so that they don't uh, go to rumble with their rivals, the sharks. And it, it culminates in this essentially dance fight between Tony and riff and Spielberg's camera is moving all over the place. It, it, it'll like the, the gun that they're wrestling over will, you know, suddenly be thrust into a close up in the camera. And it all just is thrilling to watch just Spielberg take the obvious expertise that he has in, uh, from a long career of making great movies and bring that to the kinds of needs that a musical has, which is to, you know, show show movement in a way that reveals character and to not just plop the camera down and let us watch people dance, but to use editing and camera placement judiciously mm-hmm. in a way that has an energy all its own. Yeah, it felt really good to sit down and to watch this movie, and from the opening shot, I felt like I was in good hands just based on the way that the camera was moving. Um, when you first see the jets walking through the streets, um, the camera's kind of at this low angle looking up at them, like they're supposed to be kind of awe-inspiring and a little bit scary. Um, and then there's just other like little moments, like the the dance fight sequence that you were just talking about is definitely a standout. But there's also this moment where we first meet Tony. He's downstairs at Doc's um, restocking some cans. And he talks about how he's scared of himself and what he's capable of doing because he's been away in prison for nearly killing another boy while he was a member of the Jets. And as he's talking about that, he walks to the back of the storeroom and he's framed by um, a set of shelves. And the way that the shelves are set up, he's he's kind of placing himself into a very small space, very far away from the camera. He's intentionally shrinking himself and making himself less than who he actually is, purely because he's afraid of the power that he has. And all of that's in just this one little shot. Spielberg doesn't call too much attention to it, which I really appreciate because he knows the power of that shot without having to punctuate it or zoom in or do anything else like that. And so many of the other shots in this movie are just like this, too. Like, there's, it's just such intelligent use of the camera. Um and also very empathetic at the same time too. Um, even when I don't know some of some of these boys are really not <laughs> pleasant people to be around, but I felt like a lot of the filmmaking that Spielberg is doing here is placing us in their shoes in a way that makes us understand this is why these kids feel this way. This is why they feel like they need to go and rumble against another gang, um, and maybe it. Like the movie, I don't feel like the movie condones their actions, um, but it certainly does give us a way of understanding. Well, this is how they got to this point. Yeah, the well, that that first shot that you mentioned, where you know we kind of start at the bottom, and and Camp Spielberg's camera kind of uh, rises and rises and rises until we see the the neighborhood mm-hmm. in which these characters 
live and fight. And uh, it doesn't look just like a, a slum, like perhaps in the, in the original. It looks basically like a war zone. The mm-hmm. buildings look bombed out, totally destroyed. And then when we finally start watch, uh, following the jets as they you know, slowly congregate and, and walk down the street and, you know, commit small acts of, of, of criminality along the way, there's scary is kind of a, uh, there's a threatening quality to them that I guess I don't really find in the, in the toughs from the, the 1961 version, especially, mm-hmm. uh, I want to call out Mike faced as riff. I think he's <sighs> For me, one of the clear standouts, maybe the clear standout of the entire cast. And I love the way that, I mean, the the actor's performance and then the, the costuming really just shows off how he's just so, he's sinewy and lean and he's got kind of this, this gangly stalking quality where he really genuinely, he's charming but he also seems dangerous and i think he's incredibly charismatic yeah he's 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 wonderful he's charismatic is maybe not even a sufficient word to describe he's just he's magnetic (laughs) which is you know it poor ansel elgore i i think is uh kind Mm -hmm. of overshadowed by him in a lot of ways it's just it's hard for him to hold his own when uh, Faced is just so um, magnetic as as Riff, right? Like he, there, there's almost nobody else you really want to be watching on the screen other than him and David Alvarez as as Bernardo. They're the real stars of the show, which might be a problem when the whole movie hinges on the romance between Tony and Maria instead. Mm-hmm. Um, and that might be like, you know, something you can slightly ding it, ding them on, but it's almost a good problem to have that the supporting cast is so incredibly strong that you'll just want to watch them in their own movie. Yeah. I, I completely agree with you about those performances in particular. I didn't really love the leads. I think Rachel Ziegler is totally fine. Ansel Elgort is a very solid dancer and a solid singer, but not I, much I did of not, an actor. I didn't think. No, in this unfortunately not. And and I did not believe their romance at all. And that was the one thing about this movie that really didn't work for me. Um, is that I I did not believe that these two had fallen in love with each other and were willing to run away with each other after 24 hours of knowing each other. And I think that's a huge failing when the entire story revolves around that. I honestly think if um, we had had uh, Mike Faced and... um, Ariana DeBose, even as the two leads, like they're both fantastic support players here and they're really doing their best and giving their all in these incredible um, roles. A part of me wonders what would have happened if these two had been the leads. Uh, Ariana DeBose plays Anita um, taking over for Rita Moreno. And I also loved her performance as well. She's just got a lot of of life and verve. And um, Mm -hmm. she really like... I understand why she loves New York at the beginning, and I understand why she hates the situation that she's been put in at the end. And you can really track the entire uh, arc of the entire story through her emotional, um, through her emotional arc. And when that's happening with the supporting character, that's really good reinforcement for the story. But it didn't. I don't know. It kind of undercut just how how empty that central pairing really felt for me which was kind of disappointing i i agree and ariana debose i'm glad you called her out i i liked her quite a bit in in this role and the it's telling i think that the way that spielberg 
um, frames Spielberg and Kushner frame her her big number, America. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just you know uh, confined to uh, a tit for tat exchange between the uh, Puerto Rican women and the Puerto Rican men, but it's actually something that uh, Anita takes in, out into the streets. And there's this big dance number, and they're joined by not just um, their Puerto Rican uh, compatriots, but also. Uh, the entire neighborhood kind of joins in. And that I think is, mm-hmm. it's almost like Spielberg is really interested in in probing kind of the the situation that all these characters find themselves in rather than the specific relationships between the characters. And, and that, mm-hmm. depending on your preferences, might be a, a smaller weakness or a larger weakness. Um, but it definitely... It, I, I, it works really well on its own terms. It is unfortunate, I guess, that the the central r- romance that the entire story hinges on gets a little bit short shrift. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you there. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive, Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us. Written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, breathe, receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, breathe, receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. Yeah, I'd like to talk a little bit about Rita Morena's role in this film. Of course, she plays Anita in the 1961 original. In this film, she is the uh, the drugstore owner and um, is sort of a a mother figure in a way for Ansel Elgort's Tony. And uh, I, I really liked her performance as well, and I wanted to make sure to call her out because it's almost funny that she gives one of the strongest performances in the original and also gives one of the strongest performances in the remake as well, playing a completely different character. I liked her quite a bit. Yeah, I almost wish that she got a little bit more screen time even. Um, and maybe that's taking away from the central romance even more. So probably not necessary. Probably a good decision on Spielberg's part. But she's the one who ends up singing the song somewhere later on at the towards the end of the movie. And as she's singing it, the camera kind of cuts away, fades away in and out to all of the other characters and what they're doing at that moment. And I feel like that kind of undercut her performance a little bit. And I kind of wish that we had been given a chance to understand her a little bit less as an icon of this neighborhood, very clearly like an icon and a callback to the previous version of this movie, um, and given her a chance to breathe as her own character too. So liked her, wish I'd gotten a little bit more of her. It, it does kind of feel like you you maybe feel Spielberg's elbow in your ribs a little bit when you know there's you know a little bit of cr- uh, cutting from... Uh, Rita Moreno's face to Ariana DeBose's face and it's like, eh? Eh, see, they were both Anita at one point and you're like, I I get it, but it would have been nice to see, you know, if Kushner had found a way to beef up her her role in in a different way, I Mm -hmm. I guess, for this version. One of the other things that I noticed um, that I really liked about this movie, I I feel like I keep 
giving it a compliment and then almost taking that compliment back when I talk <laughs> about something that I didn't necessarily like. And I did like this very movie very much. It's got an incredible sense of space and a really good sense of like place as well. I felt like every time the camera cut to a new angle, I still knew where everybody was which is mm -hmm. crucial for movies that involve so much movement and dance. Like it's crucial for movies that have a lot of action too, because you don't want to get lost in a, the middle of a fight, but especially you do not want to get lost when you're looking at people who are dancing. And I think Spielberg is very smart about um, moving the camera back, letting you see a little bit more of everybody's body in motion, especially full bodies, arms and legs included. You don't get that very much anymore. And I'm so glad that he trusts his performers to be able to carry that action without having to make a ton of rapid cuts and keep your eye moving around the, around the screen. Um, you're able to just like sit there and watch everybody move and watch them move fully and really understand and drink in what's going on. Um, so fantastic staging, really good choreography as well, I thought. Yeah, and it's it's no small feat to to have the editing work that well. Uh, Sarah Brochar and Michael Kahn were were both the the film editors on this picture, and there are are, are a couple of, of dance sequences where just the 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 edits are so perfectly placed, like they they let the shot linger just long enough for you to see the movement, get a sense of the direction it's going, the the shape of the actor's body. And then they they cut right on the on the movement, so it's almost mm -hmm. like the the viewer is being propelled from shot to shot. And you know, I I, I badmouthed uh, other musicals earlier, and I I I I don't mean to you know uh, rain on their parade too much, but it's just. I had almost forgotten what it was like to watch a musical that mm -hmm. could do that, that where, where I felt like it wasn't just a series of shots kind of glued together so that we kind of got a sense for the movement, but uh, a series of shots so well chosen and so well edited that I actually felt myself being pulled through the movie along with the music. It's just, it, I don't know, it was a real pleasure to to experience. Definitely, yeah. Very kinetic but not in a way that felt overwhelming. Like the pacing was just right. Kinetic. For all of that, those cuts that was that was the word I was looking for. That's a that's a great way to describe it. Um, I think there's also a really good thread of language in here, and I don't remember off the top of my head how much Spanish is in the original play or in the original movie. But I felt like there was a lot more code switching versus what I remembered in this one as well. Like a lot of characters will start a sentence in Spanish and then they will switch to English to make a point or to emphasize something and then they'll switch back to Spanish. Um, and I know you mentioned earlier that there's this thread of class that's running through this movie as well. And I think that part of that class is also what language is everybody speaking and who's allowed to speak what when. Like there's there's a line at the dance that kind of kicks off all of the action <laughs> where somebody says like, speak English during school sponsored dances. Mm -hmm. And so often, um, especially the sharks are just told like, you need to speak English, you need to speak English, you need to speak so that we can understand you, we being the people in power. Um, and then every once in a while, somebody will come in with like a line in Spanish that sort of undercuts that power a little bit. Um, and this is part of, I think, the original play where um, 
Maria will speak, pretends that she can't speak English quite as well as she actually can in order to stall uh, the cop who's come looking for information about the killer of her brother. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I, I felt like there was a very thoughtful and gentle focus on the way that people were thinking and on the language that they were thinking in that I appreciated very much and that I hadn't picked up in previous versions of this story. Well, and, and a key ingredient in in creating that that impression is Spielberg makes the conscious decision not to subtitle any of the Spanish dialogue, mm-hmm. which I thought was, it, it, it took some getting used to at first because I, was, I wasn't sure if I was just not understanding the actor's dialogue or if they were actually speaking in a different language because I, I don't know Spanish myself. But... Uh. Um, but the, the, his choice to not subtitle it essentially places the Spanish-speaking characters on an even footing uh, with the audience as the English-speaking yes. characters. So they, you know, they aren't uh, speaking like they their communication doesn't need a crutch for the benefit of the audience. They are in their own world and they're they're communicating and moving through their own world just as anyone else does and whether or not the audience can keep up with them isn't really the point they can keep up with themselves and i really mm-hmm. liked that that way that spielberg did that even just with a a tiny choice of just not translating every single thing they say for the uh non-spanish speaking people like me in the audience <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I personally loved that choice. I'm the kind of person who like, I know just enough to be able to compare between subtitles and what's being said. And sometimes I find that personally a little bit distracting. At the same time, I understand like, sometimes it's helpful to have subtitles for everything. So like, I don't know, maybe it would have been interesting to see this movie all with English subtitles and, and whether or not that would have watered down the choice to not subtitle the Spanish. I don't know. Mm. Um but I did like that decision very much. Yeah, it, it is kind of just a a, a subtle way of of the uh, of uh, a director being able to communicate something about the humanity of his characters and the the fact that you know for for, for lack of a better way to put it, that you know they're all equal in the eyes of Spielberg's camera, and <laughs> that's just it, it's it's so nice to see that. And I think that me that's kind of a, a summation of the the picture as as a whole is that Spielberg's his 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 command of his craft makes this movie even though it does have uh some flaws or maybe some points where it suffers in comparison to the original it's still it's very much its own thing and has has lots of its own virtues to recommend it yes Well, listeners, that is our review of Steven Spielberg's version of West Side Story. If you've had a chance to see this movie and have any thoughts on it, or if you have any thoughts on the original and you want to share those with us, we would love to hear from you. You can always email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. And of course, we're always on Twitter at cbelievepod, so you can send us a tweet on there letting us know your thoughts as well. But for now, Sarah, we are going to close out 2021 with uh, the final recommendation of the year where each of us brings something from the world of television or film that we want to share with our listeners. Uh, What do you have for us this week? Oh, man, this feels like such a a big responsibility (laughs) all of a sudden (laughs) because it's the final one of 2021. Um, So we've been talking about um, 
a musical that is bright in places and is based on a very bright musical from the 60s. So I thought I'd actually kind of keep in um, in line with that particular line of thinking and recommend another very bright musical also from the 1960s. Uh, this one is The Young Girls of Rochefort, uh, which was directed by Jacques Demy, uh, and it came out in 1967. It's a French musical, so there are subtitles uh, for those of us who only speak English. Um, but it's it's a very... In all of the places where West Side Story is darker and heavier, this one is brighter and lighter and pleasant to watch. And it's 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 just such a fun piece of uh, I almost want to call it like candy, almost like cotton candy, because it is a very fluffy movie. But it, it's fluffy in a way that feels comforting. A um, lot of supporting characters, a lot of little bits and pieces being woven in and out until they all kind of come together at the very end in a way that feels very satisfying. Um, Gene Kelly's in it incredibly, which I didn't know before I started watching this movie for the first time. Um, lots of great songs, lots of great dances. Everybody is wearing um, neon colored clothing and there's a lot of fun jokes and background jokes and you, you cannot possibly pick up on everything all at once, um, all at the same time. So it really rewards repeat watchings or maybe here's my pitch. Steven Spielberg can do the remake of this movie, too. I would I would love nothing more than that. So oh, uh, The Young Girls of Rochefort is my recommendation for this week. That That's that's a great recommendation. I haven't seen that one. I've seen Demi's uh, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg and just love that film. Um, also a so great movie. I'll, I'll, I, and I, I considered making that my recommendation, but I've already burned that recommendation on a previous episode so i couldn't repeat myself this time around but yeah uh young girls of rochefort that's a good pick i'll have to uh see where that is on my queue maybe see if i can bump it up a little bit that was highly uh, recommend quite a recommendation uh my recommendation for this week is not a musical but it is gang related um maybe a little bit more serious <laughs> than something like west side story uh i'm thinking of steve james's 2011 documentary the interrupters um this is a a documentary about um violence interrupters in chicago so you know there's a Chicago connection, mm -hmm. so I already feel very warmly towards it because of that. But I think the remarkable thing about this documentary isn't so much the 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 story of the people of the documentary subjects themselves. I mean, it is really remarkable. These are people who live in communities uh, primarily on Chicago's south and west sides um, that are that experience lots of gang violence. Some of these violence interrupters are former gang members themselves. Others are uh, parents or, or uh, older older people in the community who feel a responsibility to the young people around them. Um, but in case, their strategy is to essentially, in the communities in which they live, if they see a confrontation beginning to escalate between uh, young people or rival gang members to literally physically interpose themselves into that conflict and try to de-escalate it and defuse it. And that is just, it's so remarkable to hear their stories and to think of the courage that it would take for, you know, there's, there's this one woman in, in this film who's, you know, she's, she's just a, a short, um, middle-aged woman, you know, the, these, uh, gang members are towering over her and yet she is utterly fearless in inserting herself into these situations, all for the sake of um, 
of ensuring that more young people don't die in in gang violence. It's really inspiring. It's I don't know, I'm too fine on it. It's really a great portrait of what it means to lay down your life um, for someone. And uh, mm. I don't know, it's just a, a really, a really wonderful documentary. And uh, it's it's a short one too. I think it's you know under under eighty minutes. So you know it's obviously worth the time. And especially if you want to get a sense for what people on the ground are doing in a city like Chicago to solve uh, the problem of gang violence, rather than using the issue as a political football, I think this documentary is is required viewing. So uh, Steve James's 2011 film, The Interrupters, is my pick for this week. That's such a terrific uh, recommendation. That's one that I have not seen either. So I think we've both given each other something to watch over the <laughs> Christmas break. Um, I love Steve James's City So Real, which came out last year as well. So I'm excited to see more um, of his documentary work around Chicago as well. Oh man, I, I, have, I have a screener for City So Real sitting sitting on my huge stack of screeners on the table right now. <laughs> I have not gotten around to it, but I, I really need to. I've heard really good things about it's it. It's terrific. Well, uh, that'll give us something to do over the week between Christmas and New Year's. Listeners, we will be back in the new year with uh, our top 10 episode. That's one of my personal favorite episodes to record, just looking back over the past year, picking out my favorites, the movies that that we love, the movies that we want other people to see. It'll all be happening, I, I think, um, January uh, 7th is when that episode will be airing. But we will be taking the next week off so we can enjoy the holidays. We really hope that you all enjoy Christmas, too. Uh, Sarah, thanks so much for coming on the show again. It was really fun talking about this movie with you. Thank you so much for having me again. This was a delight. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I'm joined by Sarah Welch Larson, and we'll see you in 2022 on Seeing and Belief. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0. This episode was brought to you in part by the audio adventure series, Discovery Mountain. Help your kids fall in love with the Bible. Each true-to-life adventure story will draw them closer to Jesus. Visit discoverymountain.com CT.